in an hour that is important. And you being here and, and you guys continuing to faithfully come and us being able to assemble like this, this is not insignificant. It's not. The Holy Spirit has chosen each one of you. He has chosen every person that's continued to come on here. And he is the one that is pouring into us. He is. And he's building us up because we are the remnant in the earth. We are part of this end times church and there is a purpose. And so I just truly have this something burning in me, just like this excitement about a move of God that I just believe is coming. It's coming. And, you know, when we were in Africa, Bernie um, had a, a kind of a word from the Lord, I guess I would say, and he kept saying, there's more, there's more. And, and we all that resonated with each one of us. And there is, there's more with what the Lord wants to do. You know, even when we look at the scriptures of what Paul, when he would go back to a couple of the churches where he had been training them and he was like, what's going on? You know, you guys are still in elementary teachings. We need to be moving on to these, these deeper things. You know, and he was calling laying on of hands and raising from the dead and even the the gospel of salvation. These He was calling these things elementary because there is more. There's more to, as we've been talking about, the big picture of what God is doing. And so um, tonight I'm going to share from Ezekiel. And um, if we have time, I also will share a little bit from Zechariah because those are the scriptures that we've been in over the past week. I believe it'll lead us right into more of the big picture. So I'm going to share my screen. The name Ezekiel means God strengthens, but he is, this prophet is more commonly referred to. In fact, 83 times he's referred to as son of man throughout the book um, of Ezekiel. That's a, but that's a title that Jesus used for himself. And there's no other prophet that's known by that particular title. And so the book of Ezekiel, it might actually be one of uh, the most neglected and maybe even the least favorite parts of the Old Testament. It's about 20 years of preaching that are squeezed into the book. You know, Ezekiel shows a side of God's character that not many people find appealing. You know, he's speaking mostly about the severity of God's judgment. And so books like Ezekiel, they challenge us, you know, they um, challenge us to ask two questions. One would be, why do you read the Bible? And how do you read the Bible? And the reason that you're, you're reading your Bible will actually determine how you read it. You know, method flows from motive. There's a verse-centered uh, approach, which you know, that's really focusing on ourselves when we're just, you know, picking out verses. It's where people look for a word for themselves as they read. Similarly, devotional Bible readings can also be useful um, because it's better than nothing, but it's not really the right way to read the Bible. It's essentially a self-centered way to read it. And so next, there is a book-centered approach, and that is the best approach when we're reading Ezekiel because it involves getting a grasp of the whole book rather than just parts of it. And the main reason that we should have for reading the Bible is so that we might know God. Reading it teaches us what kind of God that he is, you know, how he responds to us, how he feels about us and what he's going to do based on our choices. Um, so if we avoid Ezekiel, we would really avoid a crucial part of God's revelation about himself, and we miss out what, uh, what he actually wants to teach us. 
But before we look into the book of Ezekiel, we need to grasp um, some of the historical background. A century before the 10 tribes of Israel had uh, been carried off uh, into captivity into Assyria. And so they had ignored the warnings of the prophets Amos and Hosea. And Ezekiel, he was now concerned with the two tribes that were left in the south, who turned out to be kind of a little worse. And they, they also had ignored the prophets Isaiah and Micah, who had warned them of the coming judgment. And when Jeremiah came a little earlier, they ignored him too. Habakkuk, he actually warned of their impending dooms at doom at the hands of the Babylonians because they were about to be taken captive by Babylon. But his message even fell on deaf ears. And so finally, what God said that he was going to do actually happened. And then they were deported to Babylon. So Ezekiel was taken into captivity uh, um, as well. And it was around this time that he was called to preach that when he was actually taken into captivity, Ezekiel was also able to see into the future. So he was a prophet, um, a seer. The call of Ezekiel was very unusual. Um, it came as part of a strange vision that he was given. He saw four creatures and above the four creatures, he sees the creator on his throne. The Lord placed his hand upon me and showed me some visions. I saw a windstorm blowing in from the north, lightning flashed from a huge cloud and it lit up the whole sky with a dazzling brightness. The fiery center of the cloud was as shiny as polished metal. And in that center, I saw what looked like four living creatures. They were somewhat like humans, except that each one had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, but their feet looked like the hooves of calves and sparkled like bronze. Under each of their wings, these creatures had a human hand. The four creatures were standing back to back with the tips of their wings touching. They moved together in every direction without turning their bodies. Each creature had the face of a human in front and the face of a lion on the right side the face of a bull on the left and the face of an eagle in back. Two wings of each creature were spread out and touched the wings of the creatures on either side. The other two wings of each creature were folded against his body. Wherever the four creatures went, they moved together without turning their bodies because each creature faced straight ahead. The creatures were glowing with hot coals and I saw something like a flaming torch moving back and forth among them. What is being described here is actually picked up in the book of Revelation. And one of the reasons that Christians often struggle with understanding the book of Revelation is because we don't know enough about the Old Testament, you know, and Ezekiel in particular. Revelation actually alludes uh, to the Old Testament 300 times. And so it picks up the symbols of Ezekiel and it uses so much from this Old Testament book that if you don't know Ezekiel, you can be puzzled by Revelation. And so I'd like to see if someone could read Revelation chapter four, verses six to eight. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second was like a calf. The third had the face of a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. 
And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings and full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they did not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. So around the throne of God are some very strange sounding creatures. And I mean that with all reverence because they, to us, these are unusual sounding creatures. Um, but these are the creatures that are described that are literally around the throne. And so these creatures, the attributes that, that we're told that they have, we find in Ezekiel 10. And in Ezekiel 10, we find four living creatures, a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And we also see a throne. We have fire, many eyes, and a rainbow. So it's seemingly the same picture. But in Ezekiel 10, we're actually told what they are. And it says that they're cherubim, which a cherubim is an angel. And so I'm going to read this verse. In my vision, I saw what appeared to be a throne of blue lapis loosely above the crystal surface over the heads of the cherubim over basically saying the angels. Both the cherubim and the wheels were covered with eyes. The cherubim had eyes all over their bodies, including their hands, their backs, and their wings. Each of the four cherubim had four faces. The first was the face of an ox. The second was a human face. The third was the face of a lion. And the fourth was the face of an eagle. Then the glory of the Lord moved out from the entrance of the temple and hovered above the cherubim. And as I watched, the cherubim flew with their wheels to the east gate of the Lord temple and the glory of God, the God of Israel hovered above them. These were the same living beings I had seen beneath the God of Israel. When I was at the Kabar river, I knew they were cherubim for each had four faces and four wings and what looked like human hands under their wings. And their faces were just like the faces of the beings I had seen at the Kabar and they traveled straight ahead just as the others had. So I believe the pictures that we are given of them are meant to convey their character to us. They have the intelligence of a man, the strength of a lion, the service of an ox, and the swiftness of an eagle. They have perception, so they have many eyes because God sees all. They have speed, so they have six wings, and we're told that day and night they never stop singing glory to God. The creatures sing about what God is. Revelation 4, 8 says, and the four beasts had each of them six wings about him and they were full of eyes within and they rest not day and night saying, holy, holy, holy Lord God almighty, which was and is and is to come. So they praise him for what he is. He is pure, holy, holy, holy. He is powerful is the Lord God Almighty, and he is permanent, always there, who was and who is and who is to come. So the creatures sing about what God is, but the elders sing about what God does. And these are the two great themes about God, what God is and what God's, God does. Revelation 4 um, verses 9 to 11 says, 
Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, and they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. So I want to take a look at God's instruction to Ezekiel in chapter two, verses seven to eight. He says, you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like the rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. So we read in chapter three, verses one to three, son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat the scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate it in my mouth. It was like honey in sweetness. So Ezekiel, you know, I don't believe that he was literally ingesting the book. Maybe he was, but Personally, I think that he was to, you know, being given instructions to devour it and absorb its contents, um, essentially. So he was then told in Ezekiel 3, verses 17 and 18, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die and you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. We all have a calling and a responsibility to sound the alarm to the unsaved people that are around us. And honestly, I'm speaking to myself here, shame on us when we choose not to do that because really and truly, lives are actually at stake. And so we have to apply these messages that we're reading to ourselves. You know, first of all, who are the wicked in God's eyes? It's anyone and everyone who's not accepted the gospel message of salvation, which, you know, only uh, exists by the blood of Jesus. That's part of the gospel message. They have to be receiving the blood of Jesus to atone for their sins and, and be having repentance in their heart, realizing that God is a holy God and that a penalty had to be paid. And so we have to accept that from the Lord Jesus as our free gift of salvation. So that has to happen. But these wicked are actually some of our nice relatives. They're some of our friends. Um, you know, they're some of our nice neighbors. And so God sees wicked and good differently than we do. He does. God sees only two categories. And we've talked about this before. He sees saved and unsaved, wicked and righteous by the blood of Jesus. And we would do well if we could get this also in our mindset and see it the same way. You know, way too many Christians make a choice to spend way too little time in the Bible. And, you know, how, how can we relay a message accurately unless we're willing to devour his book, just like Ezekiel was instructed to devour the book? Because it's the only way that we can be equipped to deliver the message accurately. But when we're truly fortified with the truth of his word, so that, you know, we're actually surrounded by an endless mission field and we're God's watchmen. So how can we remain silent? Do we not believe what God is saying or do we care? 
about people around us? I mean, these are real questions that I'm actually reminding myself of, especially in this hour, because this is, you know, an important time we're, we're living in when we are seeing so much wickedness increase in the earth. And we've got to be sounding the alarm, you know, and I really don't see any other alternatives. God didn't give this designation of watchmen as an alternative. It's actually our commission. You know, he said, you who call upon the name of the Lord, do not keep silent. You know, we've been given a commission in Matthew 28 to go out and to make disciples in all of the world, you know, teaching them to do what I've called you to do. And so maybe we should try a little less of trying to entertain people. Maybe we should try to be a little less funny or a little less interesting or a little less wise in our words or even trying and thinking so much about being intelligent where it's holding us back from opening our mouth because it looks like we're instructed to just simply dispense the only message that we as his ambassadors need to have, you know, because it's just his word that's going to do the work. It's really not about us and how good we are at delivering it. It's just being obedient to deliver his words. And so humans were intended, we're intended to be social creatures, not isolationists. You know, we're not meant to be by ourselves, an island to ourselves. But the people of God were always um, being told to immerse themselves into their communities before speaking God's message. You know, there were really very few rare exceptions like Jonah and Nineveh and John the Baptist. But I want you to notice as you were reflect or as you reflect on Ezekiel, you know, um, how he approached his target audience. And we see some of that in chapter three, verse 15. It says, then I came to the captives at Tel Aviv who dwelt by the river Chabar. And I sat there where they sat and I remained there astonished among them seven days. So it was only after that period of getting to know them because he's hanging out with them. He's sitting there with them for seven days. And then we read in verse 16 and 17. Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. So he was there to initially embark on a relationship. And then God's word took precedence over his own words. And as Paul did his missionary work, he often set aside periods of time, you know, as a tent maker. Um, we see that was his profession, what he did when he would go into towns. And so before reaching out to his audience, he was doing his craft. Um, he would get to know people in his community. Paul adjusted his style depending on his audience. And we read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23, that he varied his approach, whether he was conversing with Jews or with Greeks. So he concluded and he said, um, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And so I think it's incredibly important to clarify that although he adjusted his words, he never compromised God's word as it is revealed in the gospel. In fact, he said that he gave the same message to both Jews and Gentiles, and he did not shrink back from delivering the full counsel of God. And I say that because some people misinterpret that scripture to mean that he just like was a chameleon and he would just become like anybody he was around. And he would, you know, sometimes be this and sometimes be that. He might have adjusted his delivery, but his message was the same. That's what we get from scripture. And so we, the messengers of God, we are meant to be among people. We are, we're meant to weep with them, to rejoice with them. But 
it's in this relationship that we come to understand, you know, people's pain and confusion, their concern, you know, through listening is where we get to better understand how to relate with them, right? We're building relationships so we can have opportunities to share the gospel. Um, but we're reminded in James 1, verse 19, let every man be swift to hear, so be ready to listen, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. So though God gave us two ears and two eyes, he only gave us one mouth. And it seems like all too often that we're using our mouth before taking in what the ears and the eyes might be trying to tell us. You know, just because society has changed, God has not. And God's message is, you know, his mess, his message. That's what it is. His message is his message. And it should never be compromised or watered down to make it more palatable or easier to hear. So unless we spend, you know, a little time getting to know others, our attempt to deliver a word, you know, sometimes it's just not readily received because we we haven't, um, you know, we're not in the right season of delivering it. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that there are times where um, God has called us to, to speak to a crowd or speak to a group and we might not know anyone and the Holy Spirit's going to do a work. But often when we're one-on-one -on -one with people, you know, that's a little different scenario. And faceless messages to faceless audiences aren't just as, they're not as effective as actual faces. So like Ezekiel, the first thing we need to do is immerse ourselves, uh, to immerse ourselves is to abide in the word of God in order to understand God's message. And then we do need to socialize with others and get to know them. So we're, we're building that atmosphere for God to be able to use us with those that are in our lives. We don't need to like hide from the world. We've actually got to be open to allow the Holy Spirit to, and, and listen, I'm guilty of this because I, I be, being one who feels like, you know, the Lord has said, come out from among them. You know, we're set apart. And yes, I don't want to go and do all the things that the world does. I don't want to be a part of a lot of, lot of those things. But I also realize that I have to be available, um, you know, and ask the Holy Spirit, what, what does he want me to do today? You know, who, who, what should I do? I shouldn't just sit in my house all the time and not allow God to use me in that way. So I think that there's just a balance is I guess what I'm saying. So we need to step out into the mission field is the point. Um, and then be able to um, uncompromisingly convey God's message, message of truth and hope about Jesus to a world that's really generally ignorant about him. And that's a reality these days. There's not you know, most people don't really know a whole lot of the Bible. And so the fact that you're spending time learning God's word, you know, is really just you're becoming equipped to be his ambassadors in the earth. So the people of Israel, they they um, witnessed miracles like any other group of people had. You know, they saw the Red Sea part. Uh, they were fed from heaven, we know, and, and drank from the rock. They won battles in supernatural ways. Prophets came on the scene who did things that were humanly impossible, but they were made possible through the power of God. And they witnessed prophecies unfold before their eyes. But despite all of that, the truth of God was not the hill that they were going to die on. You know, as we see in Ezekiel 8, they had divided hearts. They worshiped God religiously, but also divided their heart um, and worshiped other gods, which were false gods. 
They were guilty of spiritual adultery. And God describes this along with what he's going to do to the people in Ezekiel 11, uh, verses 17 to 21. He says, I will gather you from the peoples where you have been scattered and they'll they will go there and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. Then I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that will that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts follow the desire of the detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. God knew the people, but despite all he had done for him, they had a divided heart. God offered to replace that divided heart with a pure one, but we still see that he isn't forcing it on anyone. It's a free will choice. Those that aren't choosing to uh, to follow him, he says he's going to recompense their deeds on their own head. You know, if they want to continue to desire and follow after their detestable things. In Ezekiel 5.14, we see that God explains the purpose of punishment that he inflicted upon Israel. He said, you will be a warning to all the nations around you. They will see what happens when the Lord punishes a nation in anger and rebukes it, says the Lord. God intended for Israel to be an example to the nations of how to walk rightly with God. They were to be a kingdom of priests. But because of their stubborn hearts, which is what we read in the scriptures, they were disobedient. But I love that the Lord doesn't leave us wondering why he did some of the things he did. It's all right here in the scriptures. He's explaining how he is a just God, how he gave them chance after chance. But because of their rebellion, there came a day where, you know, enough was enough. And so he was going to do what he had already warned them he would do. But then the Lord said, I placed her at the center of the nations, but she has rebelled against my regulations and decrees and has been even more wicked than the surrounding nations. You people have behaved worse than your neighbors and have refused to obey my decrees and regulations. You've not even lived up to the standards of the nations around you. And in chapter eight, we read something very interesting. Ezekiel is taken up and transported by the spirit to Jerusalem. And God begins to show him some of the things that the people of Israel are doing. Then the spirit or then the Lord said to me, son of man, have you seen what the leaders of Israel are doing with their idols in dark rooms? They are saying the Lord doesn't see us. He has deserted our land. And then the Lord added, come and I will show you even more detestable sins than these. He brought me to the north gate of the Lord's temple. And some women were sitting there weeping for the God of Tammuz. In Egyptian mythology, the false God Tammuz is the name of the son of the queen of heaven. And they say that he was of a virgin birth that, and they say that he was kill, killed and then he rose again. And according to Catholics, Lent is derived from the 40 days that Jesus spent fasting in the wilderness. But it is admitted that the observance of Lent was unknown to the disciples and it didn't find its way into the church until several centuries after the time of Jesus. So Lent was an indispensable prelimin pre uh, preliminary to the great annual festival in commemoration of the death and the resurrection of Tammuz. That's the root of Lent, just so you, you mark that. Um, when Lent comes around and people don't know what they're participating in. But this was celebrated by alternate weeping and rejoicing. So the 40 days of Lent is 
connected to the worship of Tammuz. And I just wanted to throw that in as a aside for us to have a little bit of learning there of a little bit more pagan practices that are in the church. Um, then God says to Ezekiel, have you seen this? He asked, but I will show you even more detestable sins than these. Then he brought me into the inner courtyard of the Lord's temple at the entrance to the sanctuary between the entry room and the bronze altar. There were about 25 men with their backs to the sanctuary of the Lord. They were facing east, bowing low to the ground, worshiping the sun. Have you noticed all the half circles around the pictures of the saints, Mary and Jesus and many churches? You know, by the way, who is called the queen of heaven in today's religious practices? Well, in Catholicism, it's Mary, the mother of Jesus. The women need their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto other gods that they may provoke me to anger. Clearly, this is something that God does not agree with. He says, have you seen this son of man? He asks, is it nothing to the people of Judah that they commit these detestable sins, leading the whole nation into violence, thumbing their noses at me and provoking my anger. Therefore, I will respond in fury. I will neither pity nor spare them. And though they cry for mercy, I will not listen. But then we see that despite chaos and mayhem, God sets apart his own. And we get a glimpse of this in Ezekiel 9. And he said to him, walk through the streets of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of all who weep and sigh because of the detestable sins being committed in their city. Then I heard the Lord say to the other men, follow him through the city and kill everyone whose forehead is not marked. Show no mercy, have no pity, kill them all, old and young, girls and women and little children, but do not touch anyone with the mark. Begin right here at the temple. So they begin killing the 70 leaders. The Lord would not spare anyone who didn't have the mark. And just notice where he started. Begin right here at the temple. In 1 Peter, we see again that judgment begins in the house of God. And the word mark in Hebrew is tav. It's the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The modern Hebrew letter actually resembles an N, but the ancient Hebrew letter, when Ezekiel wrote this letter, was Tav, um, and it was written in the form of a cross, sealed and protected by their God who would never leave them or forsake them. And we live in very interesting times, you know, I mean, coexistence and tolerance to differing viewpoints is the norm in American society. You know, one slight compromise here, a little adjustment over here, you think nobody's going to notice, but we read in Ezekiel 1630, how degenerate is your heart, says the Lord God, seeing you do all these things, the deeds of a brazen harlot. We're facing tough decisions, and we're going to continue to face tough decisions. But as we go through these trials, we need to remember what was said in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. If we hit that moment of decision and we don't know what to do, we read a little further into what he said in verses five to eight. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, 
who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he's going to receive anything from the Lord, because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We would really do well to realize that in these changing times, when the question is God or country, when it's, you know, God or profession, the answer is it's God. You know, when the question is, is it God or friends? It's God. You know, this is the first commandment in Exodus 20, verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. Elevating anything above him is in opposition to him. Whether we want to admit it or not, putting anything before God breaks the first commandment. And it's so important in our walk with Jesus that we don't forget who we are and who he is. That we don't forget what our role is and, and what his role is. You know, the ambassador had only one job, and that was to represent the one that was sending him. And there's just one way that I can prepare in that calling to be his ambassador, and that's to know him first. You know, another role that we have in Christ is to be his witness. In a courtroom, the witness, before giving a testimony, is asked to say, I do solemnly, sincerely, and truly declare and affirm that the evidence that I shall give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Well, there's only one way to be a truthful witness for Jesus Christ, and that is to know what the truth is. And we read what Jesus said about the truth in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. He says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And as important as knowing what we are is also knowing what we're not. You know, we're in positions of submission to God who alone is in authority. This means that we are not the king or the judge. We simply represent him. So our role is not to coerce others. We're not the prosecuting or the defense attorneys. We just need to be obedient to what we've been given. This means that you know, those who receive the information that we're putting forth, they have a choice to make. And if their ears and eyes are closed, then you've been faithful and there's nothing more you can do. And we need to remember that a willingness to submit and obey is the mark of a person who can seek God's guidance and expect to receive it. We can't determine that by what our eyes see externally. We can't, you know, so we need to be faithful to what we've been charged to do and pray that the words that God has given us will find their way into fertile hearts. We read in Ezekiel 20, verses 1 to 3, Certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and set before me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Have you come to inquire of me as I live? Says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Notice, you know, like we have the role of ambassador and witness, Ezekiel had the role of prophet. And this mean that he meant that he was simply to speak forth the words that God gave him. He did not control what word was given, and he had no control as to how his audience would receive them. So what we read in this history lesson in Ezekiel 20 is that the people were continuously rebellious and that God was long-suffering. God was so patient then as he's so patient now. 
God sends his servants, but he's well aware of the condition of the heart. When the religious leaders sought to test him and ask for a sign from heaven, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 4, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus spoke in parables knowing uh, that the, his disciples would listen intently and seek truth that was contained in them. But of those that willingly rejected him, Jesus said in Matthew 13, 13, therefore I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. God is so patient. As we read in 2 Peter 3, 9, he says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but he is long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is God's position. And we have roles and we should have the same position as God. We need to be patient with others. We should never write anyone off. You know, we've been given roles as an ambassador and a witness. And to do that properly and effectively, we have to get to know him. And we can only know the truth about him from his word. In chapter 23 of Ezekiel, names are given, Ahola and Aholaba, and they were given to depict Israel and Judah. You know, though they both had God, his perfect law, his prophets, his nation, promised with milk and honey, this was not the desire of their hearts. And we read in chapter 23, verses five to seven, Ahola played the harlot, even though she was mine, and she lusted for her lovers, the neighboring Assyrians, who were clothed in purple, captains and rulers, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. Thus she committed her harlotry with them, all of them choice men of Assyria. And with all for whom she lusted, with all their idols, she defiled herself. Despite Assyria being the original terrorists, basically, you know, historically, they were some of the cruelest people in history. Israel and Judah found themselves strangely attracted to them. It's quite odd. You know, I guess it's like that bad boy attraction. I don't know what it was when you look at the, how he's considering the harlotry of a nation. But their evil ways, you know, and their worthless gods, they were attracted to all of that. And God concludes in chapter 23, verse 35, he says, Therefore, the, the, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind. And in verses 12, she has grown weary with lies and her scum has not gone from her. Let her scum be in the fire. That's the Bible. This is words of the Lord. In your filthiness is lewdness because I have cleansed you and you were not cleansed. You will not be cleansed of your filthiness anymore till I've caused my fury to rest upon you. God loves us, but that love includes free will. We are given the choice as to who and what will be the focus of our love. You know, because God has bestowed everything um, for us, including our very breath, but he's not going to force us to appreciate him or to love him. You know, though God is infinitely forgiving, he's not going to force us to repent or to come to him. The more we allow ourselves to be consumed by the world, the more that we're going to begin to emulate all that is opposed to God. If we choose to love the things of this world, we will not remain close to God. We should never minimize all of the factors that influence us, you know, or even our loved ones. We need a steady diet of God's word. 
We need strong fellowship with other believers. We need to surround ourselves with those things that exalt him. From the music that we listen to, to what we allow our eyes to watch. You know, we should not minimize the effect of the evil world, you know, that basically is crawling around to corrupt us. We can't minimize the influence of a godless teacher who your children are trying to emulate. We don't need to minimize the music, you know, or TV celebrities that we think we want to be like. You know, the politician that you might like who spouts off their godless rhetoric because it's desensitization and it's happening little by little. And there's a battle for the mind and the soul of everyone. And this book of Ezekiel tells us that God judges his own people. Judgment begins at the house of the Lord. God is holy, so he must judge. Remember that a judge has two functions, to punish the wicked and to vindicate the righteous. And too many Christians think that as soon as you've believed in Jesus, that judgment is finished. But that is far from the case. We are all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. God judges his own people and he judges them by a higher standard than the rest of them. To whom much is given, much is required. And if you're a teacher, it says not many of you should become teachers because you'll even be judged at a higher standard. But in summation, we also need to remember that we see through the book of Ezekiel, you know, that God takes vengeance. We do. We see that in God's character. That's who he is. That's why the New Testament tells us that God is both kind and severe. Notice the goodness and the severity of God. But if people mistreat you, it's not necessary to try to pay them back. You know, we need to realize that we can confidently leave that to God. So when someone's treating you bad, you know, it'd probably be good to feel sorrow for them rather than anger. If we really are being people that are spiritual people, being led by the spirit, because God is going to pay them back. And finally, God will always restore his people. Just as Israel will never disappear from history, the church will never disappear either. We belong to the people of eternity. And there will always be an Israel and always be a church. And one day we know there's going to be one flock and one shepherd. Well, there is now, but I'm saying in all the earth, that's that's going to be it. And so above all, Ezekiel gives us a view of God, um, of his omnipotence, his power, his omnipresence. You know, there's a tremendous sense of his holiness in this book, and it's a sense that he's tied his name to a nation. And the book remind us reminds us that God's reputation is at stake in his people, Israel, and that's why he will restore them because he has to vindicate his name. And I've got just a couple slides and I know I've gone long here, but I just feel that it's important to finish with a couple of verses that bring this full circle in our reading for this week in moving into Zechariah with this point that God is going to vindicate his name, what he's doing for his namesake. So uh, Ezekiel 36 16 to 24 says, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanliness of a woman and her customary impurity. 
Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for the idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. And I just want to make sure everybody understands why the Lord is saying his name has been profaned, because he is not a man that he should lie. And he made a promise, a covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that this was their covenant land. And so when he scattered his people because of their disobedience into all the four corners of the earth, it was profaning his name for them to not be living in the land that he had promised to give them. So that is why he is going to restore them to the land so that his name can no longer be profaned because he will do what he says he is going to do. And he's made a promise that he will not break. So anyway, I'm going to continue on in verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy namesake which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries and bring you back into your own land. Okay, I want to move really quickly and again, I'm, I'm going to wrap this up fast, but Acts 3.21 in the New Testament, there is a pivotal verse here, and it says for, and this is a New Living Translation, so you want to make sure you're reading it out of this one, I guess, just to be clear on what it says, but for he, which is Jesus, must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. That's an amazing verse. This is saying why Jesus is remaining in heaven and when he will be coming back to get us and when he's going to be making all things right. And it's going to be when it's time for the final restoration. But of what? Of the things God promised through his holy prophets. What things did God promise through his holy prophets? Well, if you look into any of the prophets, if you look at Ezekiel, if you look at Zechariah, if you look at Jeremiah, if you look at uh, Zephaniah, feel all of them. You know what they're talking about? The primary theme? It's the restoration of Israel. Israel was a desolate wasteland for 2,000 years. God said he was going to scatter them because he punished them for their disobedience. But he said he would not remain angry with them, that he would look again favorably upon Zion. And now is the time to favor Zion. We know that these prophecies, like in Ezekiel, where he said that can a nation not be born in one day? Israel was born in one day. Historically, we can look up the records and see what happened with the UN and their decision was made in one day. We are literally watching the prophecies unfold in our generation. This is the thing that he said, Jesus will remain in heaven until it's time for the final restoration that God promised through the holy prophets. We're watching the final restoration. Israel became a nation May 14th, 1948. My dad was, um, he was born that year. So there are people on the earth as these prophecies are coming to pass and we're still watching God return the Jewish people from all four corners of the earth. No one had lived in that land. It was a desolate wasteland, 2000 years of it up until May 14th, 1948. This is truly amazing. And this is one of the things that we're reading in these prophetic writings where God said, the nations are going to know that I'm God. 
they're going to read these prophecies and they're going to see, I said I was going to do it. And all these thousands of years later, watch me, you know, and they're going to be able to see those who have eyes to see God is doing what he said he was going to do. And we must also know that the time of his return is near. So Zechariah chapter eight, verses seven and eight says, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and the land of the west. I will bring them back and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who have been hearing in these days, these words by the mouth of the prophets, who spoke in the day the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord of hosts, that the temple might be built. Zechariah 8, 14 and 15. For thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent. So again, in these days, I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. Zechariah 10, 3 and 6, for the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse in the battle. This is talking about the end times battle that has yet to come. From him comes the cornerstone, from him the tent peg. Jesus is the tent peg. From him the battle bow, from him every ruler together. They shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them and the riders on horses shall be put to shame. I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save those, the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them for they shall be as though I had not cast them aside for I am the Lord, their God, and I will hear them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Zechariah 14, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news and all of this, you know, all the time pe people are plotting against and scheming against Jerusalem. The nations are gathering to try to surround her. Her enemies are on every side. But you know what? There's coming a day that God says he's going to put a hook in their draw and he's going to draw them out to the battlefield and he's going to be the one fighting them. And so Zechariah 14 says, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken. The houses rifled and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. Thus, the Lord, my God will come and all the saints with you. And so I just want to say, Praise Jesus. Hallelujah. How exciting is this? I mean, this is truly when I said earlier, there's more, there's more, you know, this is what we're seeing in God's big, big picture. If this is more than just about us being able to get into heaven, there is a plan that God is working out that he's been working out from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And he's invited us to be a part of it and to open our eyes to participate with him and to be able to pray according to these scriptures so that you are actually um, one of the re you're actually in the fulfillment of these prophecies when he says he's appointed watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem who are going to pray day and night without ceasing until he may establishes Jerusalem as a praise in all the earth well you know when that's going to happen not until his feet touch the ground that's when so that means we're supposed to be participating in these things and if you wonder if that's really asking you know if God's really got that call on your life you know what it says in that scripture it says you 
who call upon the name of the Lord do not keep silent. So with that, I'm going to stop and apologize because I've gone on really long tonight, but I hope that it has been beneficial. And I'm just going to open it up. Um, Pastor Bernie's on with us as well. We are going to do communion this evening. I want to give an opportunity for feedback and questions and any comments or whatever the Holy Spirit might have stirring in your heart for you to share. But I do want to also remind you that we're doing communion if you want to grab elements um, to have those ready. Um, does anybody have anything that uh, you'd like to to share? Praise the Lord. Thank you, Krista. That was a great study, of course. <laughs> Every one of you are, are just bring forth such wonderful insights from scriptures when we're doing the studies. I, I think I'm challenged with knowing that we are studying the scriptures and you know, all of us are coming together and receiving and desiring to understand what God says and, and make corrections as we maybe learn some new things. But I'm in other Bible studies with other people. And so when we're coming across scriptures where people are reading about Israel and, and it's group effort and people are just discussing and they're saying, oh, yeah, this is about Israel. But I'm so heartbroken because I'm not, I'm not crying out to the Lord for where I come from. And when we're believers and they're saying as a believer, they're feeling convicted that they're not crying out to the Lord for where they come from, not understanding that we are part of Israel as believers. Just such a lack of understanding of so much of the Old Testament and the prophetic writings that that's where much of the church doesn't see the big picture of what God is doing and how you're right, that that where they come from is irrelevant because any of the nations are irrelevant in terms of God's plan because, you know, it, what he's concerned with is the place that he has established as his dwelling place forever, where he is establishing his throne and the kingdom that is yet to come, which he said he's chosen it to be Jerusalem and Israel are his people. But the reality is they're, they are now our family. So even those who just, you know, don't understand what they're actually praying for when we pray for Israel is our own spiritual family. You know, these are, this is our biblical roots. We've been adopted Bible says we've, you've been adopted, you've been grafted in, you know, we've been made part. And it even says that the inheritance that we're going to receive when it's speaking of, in fact, I was just reading in Ezekiel, it was, uh, I can't recall which scripture that it was, but it was speaking of the inheritance and how the, it, it was speaking of the foreigners, that those that are among Israel, the foreigners receiving an inheritance, but it says as if they were natural born. That's just so beautiful because we are part of this family. So it's a good point that you, that you just made, you know, and, and that is probably something that we as um, those that have been received a revelation should be praying for, you know, for the church, for those that God's placed around us and maybe even helping um, if the Holy Spirit creates those opportunities to walk people through some of these scriptures to help them see, you know. Um, because that's part of it has really just been a lack of discipleship um, within the, the body at large, unfortunately. Amen. Praise the Lord. Um, I thank you again, Sister Krista, for this wonderful word today. And I'm just grateful. I'm always grateful to hear the word of God because, you know, sometimes God gives us revelation and, and it's really left to us to, you know, apply uh, what we have learned in our lives. Again, using that free will that you spoke about today. But today I was... Uh, it's amazing that I was driving home from 
a training event that I had um, that I, I'm currently in. It finishes tomorrow. And you just spoke uh, exactly some some words that I was sharing with a brother that I was driving with in the car as I was led by the Holy Spirit to just share the word of God. And that was uh, telling him, um, you know, the purpose of Israel. Uh, first, exactly what you said, that Israel was was uh, a nation of priests. And, and we who are in the body of Christ have also been called to be uh, 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 called into priesthood and i was telling him that because i know i've heard so many people read the old testament out of context and i was trying to just share with him that uh, he should know that that god used israel as an example of what a nation looks like when they walk before their god and when we hear god administer punishment or we hear god bless his people is because he's in the authoritative and the rightful position to do so and, 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 you know, the Holy Spirit is trying to help me take, tell him that when you hear people come to say that, oh, it, do away, go ahead and kill the children, the mother, all the cattle, it's not because God is a wicked God, it's because God is administering justice. And one more thing you said today that really opened my eyes, uh, and you just gave me the other side of the justice of God. Uh, um, it's, it's not only that you, God is judging the wicked, he's also vindicating the righteous. Is that other part that I've often ignored when I speak of the justice of God? And, you know, as, as I continue to learn when I show up to Bible studies, is that the gospel, the way we preach it or we share it has to be balanced. That we don't only show the, uh, the, 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 the side that God judges. Uh, the wicked, but we must also speak of how God vindicates the righteous, and that to me was really another day, uh, another show of why we should preach a balanced gospel. Because too much of something, uh, uh, too much of one side is is not always good. We must show people both sides of God, and that, yeah, that was a blessing to me. Thank you very much, Sister Krista. Amen, amen. I think that's a great point as well, Terrence, because that vindication piece really can put a lot of bitterness to rest. You know, it can put a lot of anxiety to rest when we really trust God. He says, vengeance is mine. That's vindication. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He's saying, don't take it in your own hands. I mean, who do you want to take, who do you want to defend you? You know, a man, you want a man to defend you or you want God to defend you? I God, he, he's going to take it to some people really at the end of the day. I mean, if they don't repent, but if they do repent, He's going to offer them the same mercy he offered to us. And that is right. That is right. And it's good because he is good. But if they don't, there will be no mercy. There'll be no mercy. And that'll be the best justice. So, I mean, to me, I feel like it just can give us peace in our heart, knowing that God's he's taking care of it. He's going to take care of it. And it helps us to live with a purity of heart, not harboring things, you know, because hurts have happened to us or things have you know, people have done wrong um, to us. You know, we're able to just release it to the Lord. And and it's, it's you know, hard, a hard thing to do, but I think it's like really letting that truth of his justice and that vindication that he he's not going to let things go undone. He said that he is not, by no means will he let the um, the guilty go unpunished. He said that. And so he's not, a, he's not a liar. He's going to deal with things, but he's patient, hoping that none would perish. He's patient because he's merciful. And, you know, and it's, and even from that aspect, even if someone who's done us wrong receives great mercy, praise the Lord, because that means they've also received transformation. 
in that because he knows the heart, you know, if it's, if it's genuine repentance. Amen. Sorry for, sorry for someone else, but I, I just love what you said at the end. And if you were speaking, which is bringing so much comfort in my heart, because I've met a lot of people who say, but I mean, look at what is happening to that good man. You know, even though we know none is good, but look at what is happening to that man. I've seen many people have that resentment for God because of what they see things supposedly happen to good people. Well, I think a good point of evangelism is saying, don't worry, God will vindicate them. You are the point of interest right now. That's why I'm preaching the gospel to you, to turn your heart to Christ. You know, God will vindicate. There is nothing that is going to go past God because it's going to judge everything. And that's just a beautiful place to see, to, to look at things. And, I, and thanks for giving me another point of evangelism to say, don't worry about it. God will vindicate them. You worry about what I'm telling you right now because you are at the spotlight. God wants your heart. As it pertains to everyone, God will not leave any stone unturned. Amen. Thank you so much, Sister Krista. Thank you. We also need to know that everyone that we think is good doesn't necessarily mean that they are. Amen. And it was the reason why God showed Ezekiel what was going on behind the scenes. Amen. You know, when the priest and um, the leaders were out in front of the people, they probably looked like they were doing all the right things, amen. And what I always challenge people is because, you know, they said, well, why does this happen to good people? Well, first of all, you're assuming something, amen. God is the only one that sees and knows everything. And God had to show that to Ezekiel. And I just believe that Ezekiel probably was blown away. Amen. And God did it deliberately. And he even brought it down to the point where he said, look for the ones first, before I do anything else, let me seal off the ones that are affected because they see what's happening and they're moaning and they're groaning. They're mourning over this. And they received that seal. So um, Terrence, I would caution you that caution others because what we believe and think to be good doesn't necessarily mean that they are, amen. And God is the one that judges the hearts because again, they were ministering. Even when you look at Ezekiel 44, God says that there are those that would minister before the people, but only the uh, descendants of Zedek would be able to come before him. So we don't know everything. We come with a perception or we... Uh, Perceive, we assume some things, we all do it, we assume some things, but it's not necessarily true. But what we can't bank on the fact is, is that God is perfect in all his ways. He has never made a mistake. He never will. And he does not take any joy in the death of a wicked man. So how much more so over a righteous one? Amen. But again, everything that appears to be doesn't necessarily mean that it is that way. And even when we look at modern day life, you know, Ted Bundy, they said he was one of the nicest gentlemen ever alive, but he was a serial killer. Amen. So we have to also know that it may appear to be this way, but it's not necessarily that way. 
Amen. And then uh, the other thing that I wanted to share is I appreciate the Lord allowing you to charge all of us, glory be unto God, amen, to not be silent, but to speak forth what God is giving us to speak and the charge to absorb, love the word, get the word in you so that when we are pressed, pushed, or feel like we're being squeezed, that is what will come out of us and not the words of this world. Amen. Uh, and indeed, we are in this world, but we are not of this world. We are of the kingdom. And uh, even praying that our hearts will be like those that were upset, that were mourning and grieving over how far they've turned away from God. And as a result of that, God could see it. I believe that he is looking at the hearts of those who are being affected. Wickedness is everywhere, amen. And it is not just life as usual. We can see, or I believe as believers we should, how far we've fallen away from God and then that grief us. And as we have been called a charge to share the truth of the word with unbelievers, we must do so also with those who say they are in Christ, but they are not, amen. Because they're living just like those who are not, amen. Maybe this is a good segue into the communion because I, I did have just, uh, I think a brief observation before we jump into it. But one of the things that continues to arrest me is uh, the requirement that we as believers have to strive for holiness. We just so often keep hearing, obviously about grace and Jesus is full of grace and truth, right? So it has its place, but we really do often use that as an excuse uh, to, to fall below the standard. Oh, well, you know, all have sinned and fallen short. Yes, we have, and we continue to do, but it's, when I look at the stuff in Ezekiel and realize that, you know, the priests are doing the same thing that the worldly people are. Uh, and then that, you know, God observes all these things and he knows what we do. Like our behavior matters. It matters. Um, and it is, it, to me, it frustrates grace if we, act like our behavior doesn't matter. And I'm really talking to myself more than anyone uh, because, in, and, and I actually want to address it a little bit when we do communion, but you know, if we think about what Jesus said, that he, he said, I am the truth. How many times have we denied the truth? How many times have we denied his word uh, as the standard? So like Judas betrayed him, but we betray him still. In many ways, well, I shouldn't say we. I'll say me, um, and and so there, there's a challenge, and especially with the end times, there's a challenge that I think the Lord issues to us as believers to be diligent, to be circumspect, to pay attention to what we're doing, what we're saying, uh, and and to strive for a certain level. He can help us. We can't do it on our own, uh, but He can help us get there. And if we fall, we repent, and we get back up. Um, but I've, I've just been in this season where I feel like the Lord is uh, 
calling me to a standard of, of holiness that quite honestly, I have not been there. I have not in many areas. Uh, and so as we consider communion tonight, I think it's one of the things that we also should do before we take communion. Uh, so uh, tonight we are going to uh, eat the bread and, and drink the, the fruit of the vine. Uh, but Paul said that uh, he received of the Lord the same thing uh, that uh, he had then given to them, which was that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he had taken bread and given thanks, uh, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is given for you. And then after supper, he took the cup and when he had given thanks. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. Uh, for the remission of sin, drink all of it in remembrance of me. But then Paul said, uh, you know, whoever eats and drinks unworthily is guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And so let someone examine himself or herself before they partake. So uh, before we partake uh, in our communion tonight, uh, we will take a moment uh, and uh, to ourselves, just silently confess the things we know uh, to the Lord that we have fallen short on uh, and let us examine ourselves and as the Holy Spirit brings things to us. Let's have a spirit uh, and a mind of repentance uh, before we engage in the Lord's Supper. Lord, your word indeed says that all have sinned and fallen short of your glory. We confess, Lord, that we have made mistakes, that we have failed to do things you've told us to do, and we've left undone things you've told us to do. Lord, we have fallen below your standard at various times. And so, Lord, we confess our sin before you now. We thank you, Lord, that you say that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to cleanse us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to forgive us and cleanse us. And so, Lord, as we have examined ourselves tonight, before we partake of the communion, we ask that you would forgive us. Lord, we ask that you would accept our heart and our mind of repentance. We realize, Lord, that the work of salvation for forgiveness has already been accomplished at the cross. We don't strive in that way that we could earn your favor or your forgiveness. You have already done that work for us. But Lord, accept our heart of repentance before you now and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. So uh, before we partake, I want to make sure we eat and drink all at the same time. Uh, so I'll give you the instruction on when to eat and when to drink. Uh, so the Bible says it was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and Jesus was with his disciples. Uh, and when he was with them, uh, he took bread and he broke it, and he gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then after supper, he took the cup and he had given thanks. He blessed it and said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you for the remission of sin. So tonight we are doing this because Jesus told us to do it. He said, do it in remembrance of me. 
So tonight we remember that Jesus suffered on the cross for our sins, that he gave his body for us, that he died and rose again. Uh, and so we are grateful tonight for what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. He did it. He paid the price for us. And so he uh, said to his disciples, you know, Moses, you think Moses gave you manna from heaven? And he said, but I am the true bread, which comes from heaven. So let's take our bread now. Lord, we thank you for the bread, the element that is before us. We pray that you would bless it in our homes, wherever we are, that we might commune together and with you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may now eat the bread. Jesus took the cup. He talked about the forgiveness of sin in his blood. And so tonight, as you drink all of it, remember that he shed his blood for you. You may now drink. Jesus said, he that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me and I in him. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that as we eat the bread and drink of the fruit of the vine and do this in remembrance of you, that we dwell in you and you in us. Who are we, Lord, that you would come and live in us? It is only because of your sacrifice that makes us clean that you would come and dwell in us. So we thank you for your body that was broken for us. We thank you, Lord, for the stripes you took in your body for our healing. And so for those of us uh, tonight who have gathered and have any physical or mental or emotional impairment, Lord, we plead the stripes of Jesus now. We ask that you would touch bodies and touch minds, for by your stripes we are already healed. And Lord, as we have declared your blood, we pray now that you would forgive us fresh and new tonight. Forgive us and cleanse us. Make us righteous again in your sight. We bless you for this uh, time together to commune in remembrance of what you did for us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hallelujah. He is so good. He is so good. Amen. So good. He is so amen. good. Amen. He is. <laughs> All right. They, 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 they afterwards, it says they, they sang a song that they left him out of bottles, but I, I don't think we're going to sing together tonight. Uh, <laughs> thanks. I was about Amen. to say, well, with joyful hearts, we'll depart and look forward to next Monday. Praise the Lord. Amen. <laughs> God bless you all. Amen. Reminder for Wednesday prayer. If you're, able, if you're able to join us Wednesday, there's the four times of prayer. So please go to the website and check those out uh, for your time zone. But we would love to see you there if you're able to join us in prayer. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you too. Bye-bye.